16 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much yet again that we're here. And Father, we thank you for how you've provided for us in our offerings this evening. And, and Lord, we, we know that um, you are our provider, that it's all yours. So help us to give it right back to you, Lord. And Father, we thank you for this time of singing that we had even as we lifted our voice to you. It's not about how well we carry a tune. It's that we're praising you. It's that we're honoring you for, for how great you really are. We look at everything around us and we see how beautiful and how perfect you are, Lord. You created this world. Unfortunately, God, through sin, through, uh, th- at the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned, there came a curse on this, earth, on this world. And everything that's in it now is, is not good. So, Father, we, we pray that tonight you would help us to divide um, the world. Help us to divide what is a good love and what is an unhealthy love. Help us, Lord, to be uh, called apart from the world, to sanctify ourselves apart from it, to, to be different, to be light shining in the darkness. Help us, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I, I, by, will, uh, by way of illustration tonight, uh, and just because of the current events that are going on in the world tonight and today, I don't know if we've really talked about it too much. We've prayed a little bit about what's going on in Ukraine. Um, I want to talk about Vladimir Putin. And I'm not gonna, I haven't done no um, biography on the man or anything like that. But I want you to think about what his love is really in, what his devotion is really in. He wants more and more and more and more. He's like a, he's like a greedy kid in a cookie jar just grabbing more cookies, more cookies, more cookies, more cookies. He can never have enough, okay? So Vladimir Putin has invaded Ukraine. He wants that piece of land. Okay, just in a nutshell, he wants that piece of land more than anything. Uh, it's not, it doesn't matter that he's already got this huge, this huge landmass of Russia. That's not enough to him. He wants that little bit of piece of Ukraine too, which would help him, I'm sure, in the, in the oil trade and direct access down into, through the Middle East. It would help him to amass more power, more money, and give him more pride even if he can go in here and win this war, right? If he can go in here and, and do these things. He loves the world. He's a wicked and evil man. He doesn't care about the people that he's blown up. He doesn't care about the people that he's killed, the cities that he's demolished so far, the soldiers' lives that he's sending in from his native country to go into Ukraine, which is just bordering Russia, so the two people are almost the same. He's pretty much asking families to kill families. You know what I'm saying? It's unfortunate. It's evil. It's wicked. It's vile. His mind, his love, his lust is in the world. I'm sure we could go into more depth and some people would know more about it than I would, but that's Vladimir Putin in a nutshell. And another guy that I want to talk about is Kenneth Copeland. Okay, some of you guys who have watched TV, you see people like Benny Hinn uh, who stands up on stage with a coat and as they come up, he hits them with a coat like he's healing them and they're just getting knocked out and they're falling down and, and he's saying things like, if you would send me some money, I'll send you a handkerchief that I've blessed and you'll be healed and you'll be well. People like Kenneth Copeland, you look at him, and he's got famous slogans where he says, Money, come to me, in his, in his time of prayer for uh, the offering. You look at his house, and he's got a billion-dollar, million, multi-million-dollar home with a multi-million-dollar air track, or, uh, uh, aircraft. aircraft, with plane, you know, with the, where they land planes and all that stuff. He's got his own airport and his own mansion and his own things. He can never have enough money. What he's doing is he's prostituting the gospel. 
He's not preaching the true gospel. All he wants to do is get rich. So he preaches words that tingle people's ears to tell them what they want to hear so he can amass more money, more money, more money. He loves the world. You see, the love of God is not in this man. The man is wicked. He's demonic. He's evil. He's not saved. Come at me. I don't care. We'll talk about it later. I love you guys, but he's not saved. Amen, brother. So by way of introduction, as we see here in, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15... Um, as we come to these next few verses of Scripture in the second chapter of 1 John, we find ourselves arriving at yet another uh, test issued by the Apostle John. You guys remember that I gave you guys 10 tests, right? Uh, I can't hold up all my fingers, but I gave you 10 tests that we see here in the gospel or in the, in the, uh, in the letter of 1 John. And, and one of these tests is found here tonight. And, and it's issued for the purpose of the assurance of salvation. And so this is the fifth test of the 10 tests that John will issue in this epistle. And so by way of reminder, uh, John is writing to a rather confused and disoriented group of churches in Asia Minor. So John oversaw many of the churches in the area as he was the last living apostle and the most mature Christian around at that time, right? And so it kind of asks us this question, why were the churches in this area so confused? Well, the beginning of a false teaching that would later move into the churches and plague the world called Gnosticism began to creep up in Asia Minor and disrupt the churches. So they believed uh, of a higher knowledge of God. They, be- they denied the humanity of Jesus. They hated one another. And they lived habitually in gross sin. But that's not all. That's not the worst part. The worst part and the craziest part is that these false teachers, these false believers called themselves Christians. And John doesn't like that. So he battles them in this letter. And John writes this to refute the, the, uh, these teachers that have gone out from among the brethren. And, and he also writes it to comfort those who are genuine believers through the, through the clear presentation of gospel truth, justification by faith, and the beauty of the doctrine of conversion. So I want you to join me, though, as we begin to examine this fifth truth, this fifth test that John ought, uh, that, that a Christian ought not to love the world. And so as we look here at, at, the, at, at verse 15, we see the very first thing come up, my first point, which is a, a command, okay? And some of you guys that were in the preaching class earlier, you heard me break this down, so hopefully it, it follows. But my very first point, do not love the world or the things of the world. You see that in the first part of verse 15. So John changes up his approach here in verse 15 versus where he was just last in the last one uh, or in the last section of Scripture about spiritual maturity. So I think that if we were sitting in front of John— he would be sitting like this in wisdom as, a, as a, an elderly old man. He would be having his legs crossed like this. He's a wise old man. And as he leans in to deliver um, this test, I believe that he would, or this command, he would uncross his legs. He would lean forward. He'd put his arms on his knees. And he'd look you dead in the eye. He would say, do not love the world. It's stern, right? And it's the first time that we come across uh, 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 John saying these words, do not so I almost kind of shrink back kind of in timidness, like, whoa, where are you coming from here uh, it, it, in his language? But like a good under-shepherd, John holds nothing back from his flock. He preaches the truth in love. He delivers the command, do not love the world or the things of the world. So now why, why is this important? Why would John use such direct language? And well, here's the thing. It's because John's about to issue another test, okay? He's about to use this big theological word. You know what it is? Two letters long, it's if. That's, that's what he's going to use, if. He's got an if-then that he's about to hit. So this brings me to my second point, the test. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If anyone loves the world, then the love of the Father is not in him. 
So if you all remember the fourth test of salvation was love, right? So the, uh, two or three weeks ago, we talked about the fourth test of love. We saw that a genuine Christian loves God, that he loves people or she loves people. We saw by way of implication that born-again believers have an overwhelming love for their brothers and sisters in Christ. And they desire to meet regular, regularly as often as they can, right? If you're a Christian, you probably belong to a local church somewhere. So if John is so big on love and he uses it as a test of assurance or a test of salvation, then how is he going to tell us not to love something? I mean, because isn't Jesus love? And that's really the misconception that we have today, guys. Or today, guys, it's, it's so many people believe that God just loves everything and that he just loves everyone. We, just re- we have to remember that God hates the love of the world. God hates the love of two masters. God hates sin. God hates the love of anything wicked, right? God is holy and he's jealous for our love towards him. And he'll share it with nobody else, amen? It's his love and his alone. So the test is written in very plain language. Uh, if, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He couldn't say it any more clear, any more plain as day. If we go out here and we preach this to somebody else out there in the street, they're automatically gonna get offended, Right? You love the things of the world. You party all weekend long. You sleep with everybody that you come across. You are acting this way. You're doing this things. You're loving the world. You're amassing wealth and, and things. If I went to Kenneth Copeland and preached this gospel to him, or, or, or not gospels, forgive me, Lord. If I went to the, and preached this message to him and said, you love the world so much and the love of the Father is not in you because you're just amassing wealth and you're, prost- and you're prostituting the gospel, he would be offended and he'd blow up on me, right? It's not, it's not, um, it's not easy to take. So let me give you a clear-cut example of this. So let's look at John 16, verse 20. Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice, and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. So that may not make a whole lot of sense right now, but speaking of his crucifixion, Jesus says that the world will rejoice at this. So the evil, the wicked, will rejoice and be happy about his crucifixion, about him being nailed to the cross. So the sinful, depraved, Wicked unbelievers will be happy at his crucifixion. But those he called, those who believed in him, they would be sorrowful. We would weep at the monstrous things that happened to Jesus in his crucifixion, right? So the true believers would hate the sting of death that plagues the world. The true believers would be sorrowful at wicked men torturing the only good man to ever walk the earth. True believers would lament or they would cry at the death of Christ. While the unbelievers would laugh, while they would celebrate, while they would rejoice, and they would love torturing Christ. So it's simple, guys. What makes you laugh? What makes you cry? Are you broken over the cross? Or are you filled with joy at his resurrection? Or do you laugh at his sacrifice and deny his conquering of the grave? Where are you? So here in, in, in this beautiful style, John builds off of the fourth test of love. By showing us what not to love. So, do not love the world or things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This kind of brings a question, right? Um, this, this test of what not to love really poses this question, and it really needs clarification. What are the things... Let me, or let me just ask you this question right here. What are the things or attitudes of the world that when loved in this way would signify that the love of the Father is not in us? And I'm so thankful for this very next verse, right? In 1 John chapter 2. So look with me at verse 16. 
the answer's right there. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So I want you to lean in here with me, and let's, let's break each one of these down, starting with, number one, the lust of the flesh. So we all, uh, we all know this word lust, right? Well, when we kind of think about it, we think of, we know love and we know lust. If, if I love somebody, I'll probably marry them, and we might have a few kids together or something. But if I lust this person, we only want to sleep with them for the night, right? That's the way that we kind of gauge lust and love. Um, it's, it's never a good word. It's not a good word. It's defined as a passionate desire for something, usually for power or for sexual and sensual pleasures. You know that. It's not good. So what does the lust of the flesh look like in the Bible? Well, it looks like the homosexual in Romans chapter 1, verse 26 through 27. Let's read this. For, the reason, for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature, meaning that they were sleeping with each other, women with women. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. They desired it passionately. They wanted it so much, these women and these men that were homosexuals, and they got what they wanted. It's much like the incestual relationship between a man and his stepmother in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. Paul tells this church, he says, It's actually reported that there, is a sex, that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. Whether it's your stepmother or not, it was still immoral. It was still looked at as incest. Amen? It was still wrong. And, and Paul even says, it's not even named among the Gentiles or the barbarians, those who, those who are outside of us. It's not even named among them, the worst and the vile, other than the Jews. You know, it, it looks like the sex temples that are found in the pagan cities throughout the New Testament. You know, that's, that's what Paul is uh, refuting a lot of the times when he's talking about to avoid your sexual desires like that uh, or, or sexual immorality is there's these pagan temples where they're having orgies, where they're hooking up homosexual, uh, homosexually um, and everything else. Multiple, multiple, multiple orgies going on at once. There's these sex temples like that and they're praising a God this way. They're worshiping a God this way. So it looks like that. That's the lust of the flesh. It also looks like the adulterous relationship between David and Bathsheba, right? That was the lust of the flesh. He looked down and he saw her and he wanted to have her. Passionately desiring her. I want her. Bring her to me. I'll have her. It looks like the sexual impurity of Samson with the harlot Delilah. He had to have her, didn't he? What did it cost him? So the list could go on and on. And, and stopping there for a moment, we need to ask ourselves this question. What does the lust of the flesh look like today in the world? Does it look any different than this? No. It's about the same, ain't it, right? It's no different. Today in the world, the lust of the flesh is still promiscuity outside of marriage. It's still incest. It's still joining together in prostitution. It's still adultery. It's still scandals. It's still infidelity. It's still sleeping with your coworker. It's still sex houses ran by madams and pimps. It's still all these things. It's still the same. The lust of the flesh is, is a strongly desiring your coworker. It's the hookup culture that encompasses nightclubs, right? We all see the things on reality TV sometimes when, we, when we're flipping through the channels. Uh, these people are coming together to go drink at a nightclub just to hook up for the night and have these one-night stands. They're adding another notch to their belt, fulfilling the desires of their flesh. It's pornography. 
And help us, Lord, but today in our country, it's even pedophilia. It's something that they are trying to push on the culture today to say that it's okay. It's the LGBTQ movement. And watch, mark my words, that pedophilia uh, symbol or acronym will be added to that LGBTQ plus whatever here soon, shortly. They'll try to identify with it. The objects of lust in the flesh are not wholesome. They're not godly. They only lead to death. Just as Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way that seems right to the man. But what's it, what's, what's it say? But its end is the way of death. It always ends to the grave. So honestly, the list is, is bigger than sexual though, okay? It's also sensual, like our senses, our desires. So the lust of the flesh, or in, in the Bible we see drunkenness forbidden. That's one um, sensual desire, right? To feel good, to numb the pain, to put it all off, to, like I said, feel good. And rightly so, because nothing good ever accompanies the consumption of alcohol like this. So today we look at uh, people lusting after a bottle. We look at people lusting after a needle. We look at people lusting after a pipe. We look at people lusting after um, synthetic drugs like uh, Kratom or, or these weird things that just to try to numb the pain, right? Just to try to get away for a second. I need a breather. Instead of going to God and finding that break and finding that peace. So chasing to fill their sensual inadequacies, they never arrive to a place of peace or rest. So I have a friend who uh, I've known my, ever since I moved down to Salem, Missouri. And uh, I got home from school one day, and he got me high for my very first time. I walked home. I was 16 years old. Uh, I left my truck there, and I went down to that house where they were staying at. He was actually dating my mom. He got me high on methamphetamines for my very first time. And my life was over at that point. You know what I mean? I, I, it started a whole life of shooting methamphetamine, of doing a lot of bad, take, uh, making a lot of bad decisions, and, and using a lot of drugs. So just the other day, I seen that he was on Facebook a while back, about a month ago. Uh, he had been arrested for... I think over 100 grams of meth or so. You know, he got jammed up pretty hard. They were giving him trafficking charges. Uh, and the sad thing is, is they let him out for a short period of time. So you guys guess what they were probably allowing him to do that for. They let him out, and after being out for four days, he got arrested again. He had a warrant for refusing a judge's orders, and he had another 90 grams in his pocket again when he got arrested this last time. Um, and they were all individually packaged. So, you know, they're trying to give him trafficking and stuff. And so this man, uh, chasing his sensual desires, chasing this high, chasing this meth, chasing this numbness of oh, whatever happened to him when he was little or just the sin nature of him and filling it in that way, chasing these things, he's neglecting his two little beautiful daughters that I call my sisters. He's neglecting his mom, who I also identify as my mom too. She helped raise me up. He's a, she's about to have a heart attack. She worries about this man so much. He forgets all about everybody else and he says, I want more, give me more, give me more, give me more. And the next point that I have is the lust of the eyes. And you'll see that, um, again, that's that next point in verse 16, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. And so the word eyes here, it really has nothing to do with optometry. It's got nothing to do with glasses or, or, or how you see. In fact, the original language paints this word as evil, as envious. It's, it's actually translated as evil eye. It's not good. So, and let me tell you that an evil eye that leads to coveting and desiring strongly that which is not ours and that which may not be good for us. This evil eye, the lust of the eyes is hungry and it always wants more and more and more and more. It's never satisfied, right? The lust of the eyes chases worldly possessions. It chases dead presidents that are printed on stacks of worthless paper. 
It desires the biggest homes, the best cars. It looks at their neighbor and it says, I desire what you have. Give me more, more, more. So Daryl told us a story the other day in a Sunday school class about a rich man who was interviewed. And he said, how much money is enough? How much money is enough for you? How, when will you be content? And he said, one more dollar. Just one more dollar. And you see what happens there, right? It's never enough. One more dollar and one more dollar and one more dollar and one more dollar. It's never enough. You never be satisfied. And, and a good picture of this actually between uh, uh, the lust of the eyes is found in uh, Genesis chapter 3 verse 6. We look at when Eve was tempted, right, by, in the garden to eat, to eat this fruit that God said not to eat. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree desirable to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. It caught her eye. We was just talking earlier, actually, John, that Satan masquerades as an angel of light is what the scripture says. He's that shiny, nice job, right? He's that shiny, cool car. He's that beautiful young woman, that handsome young man. A lot of times those things aren't necessarily what's good for us. I'm not saying that you can't have a nice house or a nice car. I'm not saying that you can't have a beautiful bride or a beautiful husband. But a lot of times Satan dresses up for what we want the most to distract us and entangle us and devour us like a lion. Amen? Just like he did here. He brought death to the world. Eve chose to eat of the fruit and brought sin and death to humanity. And let's look at Mark eight thirty six actually too. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? It doesn't matter how much mass or wealth or, or land or anything else that you try to acquire. What does that matter if you try to build this whole mass up, this whole kingdom up, and you lose your soul in the process? We know many of people who are out there chasing this American dream today, right? They're running head on after this American dream, working 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 hours a week, trying to amass this kingdom of their own. And they don't know Jesus. And you know where they're going? They're going to hell. Okay, just plain and simple. They're chasing a dollar, and what's it leading them to do? They're going to hell. Leading them to sin. And this next point that I have, this next sub point is, is the pride of life. This is also a love of the world. And, and these words, the pride of life, actually carry a very arrogant sense to them. They are, they are, those, who, and they are those who boast of their appearance, who boast of their possessions, boast of their title in life, Right? There are those who are prideful. Those that are prideful in their life look much like the Pharisee in this parable. Let's read Luke 18, 9 through 12. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Thank you, Lord, is what he's saying. Thank you, God, that I'm nothing like this sinner. I'm not a sinner. I'm this. I'm a Pharisee. I wear the finest clothes. I sit in the best places in the synagogue. I keep phylacteries in front of my eyes. I know the scriptures. Look who I am. That's the pride of life. I'm a CEO at this organization. You hang your whole identity on that. I'm not saying you can't be a CEO and be a Christian. But what I'm saying is what's your identity, identity marked in? Is that your pride of life? That I'm this, that I'm the associate pastor at Waymaker Baptist Church, as if I've arrived at that. Come on. So just to give you a recap of the points that we covered, the love of the Father is not in those who aim 
only in hedonistic utilitarianism. And what that means is they, they don't care about anybody else in the world. All they care about is, is to feel the greatest amount of happiness and pleasure in their life, usually through sex and sensuality. So the love of the Father is not in men like Kenneth Copeland and any other wolf in sheep's clothing behind the pulpit who always desire more and more and more. They prostitute the gospel for their own profit. And what does 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9 through 10 say about the lust of the eyes? But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith and their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. What are you chasing tonight? What are you running after? Money is not evil, but the love of it is. Amen. Right? Money is not evil. In fact, it can glorify the Lord. You can give through the church. You can give to a ministry. You can give to a missionary. And glorify the Lord if you've been blessed wealthily. It's His anyways. But the love of it, the pursuit of it, to set your eyes on it and set your face on it like flint, that's the root of all evil. So the love of the Father is not in men like the Pharisee who denies their sin and boasts arrogantly about their success, possessions, and title. And this leads me to my next point. It's a, it has an eschatological implication. And, and, and so look at verse 17. And the world is passing away and the lust of it. So this passage... Uh, also has end times implications, which is what I mean by saying eschatological. So remember that every time I want to try to keep, teach you guys a, a little word each time, okay? A, a, a theological word each time so we can grow. Um, eschatology, eschatological, eschatology just means pretty much like the end times. Think of it in that way. The end of coming, the end of something, okay? Um, and that's, that's all it means. So if you ever hear a, a preacher get up behind here and you say, let's talk about eschatology, or you ever hear that word, now you know end times. And that's what I'm tuning into. And I'm thinking of uh, prophecies in Daniel. I'm thinking of Revelation. I'm thinking of First Thessalonians, things like that, okay? So keep that in your mind and store that in your bank. It'll help you grow. So and what I mean by saying that is that God has a plan for the world and the curse that lays upon it, right? So what does first, uh, or what does Second Peter 3, 10 through 12 say? But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will, will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with the fervent heat? So why try to gain the whole world, fulfill sexual desires, and live arrogantly when the world and all that is in it will only be dissolved by fire? It's all going to burn up anyways. What's it matter? Give it away. Let go of it, right? So the new car that you skip church for on Sunday to work your fingers to the bone to acquire, you know what's going to happen to it? It's going to burn up. You know, the house that you sunk all your money into to try to keep up with the Joneses next door, you know what's going to happen to that? It's going to burn up. The bank account where you pay, place all of your faith and your trust in, but you, that you keep a close fist to God. You know what's going to happen to that stuff? It's going to burn up. It doesn't matter how tight the bolt is. It doesn't matter that you can't rob the bank. It doesn't matter that you can't make entry into the place. It's going to burn up. It's worthless. It doesn't have any value. It's also eschatological end times, remember, because God has a plan for Christians. 
He doesn't only have a plan for the world and, and the curse that's on it, but he also has a plan for Christians. So look at verse 17 again, the, the last part of it. But, thank God for the buts in the Bible, right? Yeah. But he who does the will of God abides forever. That's a promise we can keep and put in our pocket, right? We can stick that sucker right in there and when times get rough, you can pull it out. He who does the will of God will live forever. So he or she, the regenerated, born-again Christian, will not be burned up, however. The one who is saved in Christ, the one who does the will of the Father, the one who is connected to the true vine of Christ and producing Christian fruit, the one who by God's grace in faith has been made alive in Christ, will never perish, but yet will live eternally. Amen? That's something we can hang on to. Second Peter uh, three thirteen. The the the, the next uh, verse after that one that I just read you about the earth being dissolved by fire. Nevertheless, otherwise, according to the promise, look for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Amen. We don't have to keep our minds fixed on the fact that the earth is going to burn up and everything's going to burn up, right? Because our minds are fixed on heaven and the promise that He has to wipe away every tear and make all things new. Amen. So if we look at Revelation 21, 1 through 8, let's read this real quick. Now I say a new heaven and a new earth. Now I saw, sorry Lord, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Prepare, this is beautiful, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold. The tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Tiffany, hang on to that. No more pain, no more sorrows, no more heartaches. These things will pass away. Daryl, Cindy, hang on to that. No more pain. No more sorrows. You'll have a full brain, Daryl. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Amen, brother. So there's two options right here, right? How, how's it going to end for you? Or wait, there's two options to how, uh, how, how it ends. Whatever. So will you live eternally with God, never again crying a tear? Or will you weep and gnash your teeth in the lake of fire called hell? What's the choice going to be? What's the option going to be? Did I not read all of the verses? Is that what happened? Ha! This is it. Let's do this again, okay? Retake. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. There's two options for how it ends for you. Will you live eternally with God, never again crying a tear? Or will you weep and gnash your teeth in the lake of fire called hell? So let's, let's move to the application. So what? I heard, um, I heard Steve Lawson say this one time that it doesn't matter how great your sermon is, right? If you didn't get to the application part, you didn't do anything. He said that he, he, he would have a seminary professor sit in the front row, and, and this is what he told him. He said, when you preach your first sermon after you get out of seminary, I'm going to hold up a big sign that says, so what? 
It doesn't matter how much you know. It doesn't matter how many facts you brought to the table. So what? What's it mean? Bring it to life. Bring it to, bring it to life in the, in, in the hearer, to the hearer. Bring it to bear in the life of the hearer. So what is the will of God for you and for me? Because that's what he says. He who does the will of God will live forever. What's that mean? What is the will of God for you and for me? For us. I hope so. His will is for us to repent and turn from our sins. Through his, uh, through his grace, turn in faith to the cross and be saved from his wrath. Um, that, that's just in a nutshell. There's so many different avenues and aspects of the will of God. It can get deeper than that. But the correct posture of this is actually found on the other side of the coin with the tax collector in Luke 18, 13 through 14. And the tax collector. Remember, there was a Pharisee and there was a tax collector, right? The tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as even raise his eyes to heaven. He was humble. He had the right posture. His head was down. He was falling flat before the Lord. But beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So the will of God can have many parts to it. Uh, but the aspect that I want to press upon us tonight is not to live in a love affair with the world. His will is for us to be sanctified and be set apart free from the world, right? So Paul says this in 1 Timothy uh, 6.8. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. You know, Paul never said nothing about a house. He just said, as long as I got food and clothes, we're okay. How many times are we eating a day? How much are we taking for granted? You know what I'm saying? As long as we got food and clothing, he's content. What more do we need? We got, we got the Lord, right? I mean, I, I think of that song all the time by Elias Drummer. Look it up. It's called Enough. And, and he says this a few times in his course. Jesus, you are enough. Jesus, you are enough. And when I read that, or when I heard that song for the first time as we were going through our miscarriage, it hit me so hard. You're enough. Take my child. You can have him or her. It's yours. You're enough. You're all I need. And he blessed us with another child. Thank you, Lord. But... So I want to, I kind of want to close, well, not yet, but I want to share you this quote from A.W. Tozer. Uh, he, he had wrote this in his book called The Crucified Life. And I think it really breaks down this section of scripture. I could have read it and probably closed the book, honestly. When the early Christians were told that the love of the Father and the things of the world meant that they did not love God, they did not hold discussions on what the world meant or how far they could go and still please God. They got out of the world. They separated themselves completely from everything that had the world's spirit. The result was that they brought down the world's fury on their own head. So what does this mean? Look with me at John 15, 18 through 20. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember, the, world that, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep you also. Separating ourselves from the world. Making a stand for Jesus Christ. Standing on the rock of Christ and, and preaching it to the world and being a bold witness in the world. Saying, I need nothing else. I don't need your American dream. I don't need your 40-hour job. I'm going to chase Jesus for the rest of my life. I'm not saying don't provide for your family. So don't hear me say that wrong. But the world's going to hate you for it. The world's going to be the fury. The world's going to be brought down on their head. So I'm not saying tonight that possessions or money is a bad thing, but the love of it is. And I'm not saying that sex is bad, but outside of a marriage between one man and one woman, it's bad. 
I'm not saying that planning and dreaming is bad, but when it's outside of the will of God, it is. So keep your possessions and your money in an open hand, ready to give to God. This is the will of God. Love one person of the opposite sex for life. This is the will of God. Commit your plans and your needs to God, and He will provide and establish your steps. This is the will of God. I'd like to close with this hymn, and I'm not going to sing it. I'll spare you guys, okay? I say this every time, but it's called My Worth Is Not In What I Own. I think it's by the Gettys. Um, And I'll read it. My worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of, of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. My worth is not in skill or name, in win or lose, in pride or shame, but in the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross. And I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. And I will trust in Him no other. My soul is satisfied in Him alone. As summer flowers we we fade and die, fame, youth, and, and beauty hurry by. But life eternal calls to us at the cross. I will not boast in wealth or might or human wisdom's fleeting light, but I will boast in knowing Christ at the cross. And I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. And I will trust in Him, no other. My soul is satisfied in Him alone. And I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. And I will trust in Him, no other. My soul is satisfied in Him alone. And you you alone, Lord, and you alone. Two wonders here that I confess. My worth and my unworthiness. My value fixed, my ransom paid at the cross. And then she closes. So, is your soul satisfied tonight? Is is your soul satisfied in Him alone? Or is your love devoted to the world? What master are you serving? That's the challenge that I posed before you. Come and repent. Come and be saved if that's what God's calling you to do. And let's pray.